Cool. So about 500 years ago, I had a, <laughs> I had a computer. <laughs> and um, I think, what was it? Minesweeper. I wrote that game Minesweeper on an HP 41 calculator. It was like, it was awesome. I was 12 years old. That's where I started. This episode is brought to you by Offerzen, a South African recruitment startup for developers. Offerzen inverts the normal recruitment process. Instead of applying for jobs, 350 tech companies in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Pretoria send developers interview requests with upfront salary info. For developers, it's completely free to sign up and use. In fact, you get 5,000 Rand if you take a job through them. Visit offerzen.com to sign up. That's O F F E R Z E N.com. everyone and welcome to episode 62 of the ZA DevChat podcast. Tonight on the panel I'm joined by Chantal and Len. Greetings, greetings. And our guest tonight is Gail Shaw. Hello Gail. Hi Kenneth. Welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for us. So Gail, we uh, brought you in to chat a bit about data and all its variances, sizes and, and big data and, and everything around it. But before we take that plunge... Let's uh, take a moment to uh, introduce you to our to our listeners. And from the prequel, I've, I guess I can pull it back and say, let's start at that 8086 machine that you had back in the day. Oh, geez. So, yes, first computer that I actually owned, owned as in been given as a gift, was an 8086. I don't even remember if it had a hard drive. Might have had. Probably 10 megs was about what they went in for those days. And probably less than a, no, it would have been less than a mega memory. Uh, it was a gift from my father in the case of, here's your computer, stop using mine, and while you're at it, learn to code. Um, and he had a very hands-off way of teaching. One time when he was away, the hard drive failed. And his response was, fix it before I get back. Basically, he let me go and buy, he let, well, he let my mother go and buy a replacement but I had to do all the fix, actually installation. So cables, screwdrivers, and all the rest of it. So probably about 10, 11 at that time. So early start on computers there. That's so awesome. That is like the absolute best way to learn. Yeah, no, I have to agree. My, in our first computer, my parents like had it fixed that we bought the incredible connection. I was like early high school until the warranty ran out. And then my dad was like, well, <laughs> it's your problem now. <laughs> and that's when you start learning. I've never owned a desktop PC that had a warranty because ever since that 8286, I've always built my own up. They just get pieces put in them and taken out as various things need to be changed. So, so this, like, I think I owned laptops now for a lot of years. I kind of, I don't know that, that world anymore. <laughs> but um, what was the first programming language you used on that machine? On that machine, it would have been Pascal. One of the flavors of Pascal, Turbo Pascal, or one of them. I was programming before that in one of the flavors of BASIC, but that was not even an IBM machine. Yeah, I did Pascal for quite a f well, most of the way through high school. Actually, Varsity, they started us with something called Modular 2, which was a Pascal variant, so was using Pascal-ish languages through to, I think, third year Varsity. Okay. Interestingly, Modular 2 is one of the ancestors for Go. Now, that's interesting. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Uh, um, the guys who who built Modular 2 went off to build 
I forget the, the name will come to me shortly. And and then that guy who built that other language joined the Go team. So it's it's pretty direct um, influence on Go. Does Go look anything like Pascal? I've never even looked at it. I'm afraid it it's actually very very similar. I'm surprised. I didn't think anything of Pascal had survived the last what twenty years. Um, that's right. It was called Oberon. Modular 2 became an influenced uh, Oberon. So you know, a lot of the things that Pascal couldn't do, which were things like uh, multiprocessing and that sort of stuff, which Modular 2 ca- sort of brought to the table, were then refined in Oberon. And yeah, so some of the syntaxes are a little bit different, but not much. There's actually a talk, I think, by Robert Griesma, where he shows a printout of Oberon next to some Go, and it's pretty much identical. Wow. And uh, Gil, where did you study? And what did you study? Rhodes University, Physics and Computer Science. So I've actually got a double, um, yeah, I've actually got a degree in physics. Did honors at Rhodes as well. Um, then went and started working. I actually finished my master's last year via UNISA. Nice. Congrats on that one. Thanks. That took way too long. <laughs> I thought Rhodes was mostly drama students. Um, Rhodes, Rhodes is famous for pharmacy and journ. Not so much drama, journalism. Uh, but their faculty of science was at least quite decent when I was there and notoriously difficult. I won't say large. I had some very, very small classes. But it was a very good time there. Okay. And I've only been there for the Grahamstown Arts Festival. So that's awesome. I love that town. Need to need to go there again. It's a great thing to go do in winter. I love it as well. It, I stayed for Fest one year and the feel of the town between term time and Fest is completely different. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine that place gets crazy. And uh, after... So when you when you got your degree and went into the marketplace, did you get is that when you started working with uh, in IT immediately, or did you first venture out into physics? No, I did my honors in computer science, and I went straight to a commsci job. Um, by the time I was in third year on physics, I kind of realized that there's virtually no physics jobs in this country unless you want to teach. It's yeah, a physics professor, physics degree in this country, you're either teaching, working at the observatory, or mm, pretty much nothing else. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that first first job you landed, what was that like? And what did you do there? First job was a small software company called Monotex. And we did various custom software developments. Of all strange languages, we wrote them in MS Access. Very small one or two user applications, we're not talking big enterprise stuff here. And MS Access actually worked fairly well for being a very fast development platform. It's integrated database and, well, VB-ish front end. We mostly did MS Access. I got tossed into an Oracle project straight away. They'd had an opening, they needed the new person. So, hello, for the first day on the job, here's an Oracle database for you to work on. And I'm curious, what was that like? I mean, that's like staring the, the, like the devil in the face. Oh, I have very, very fond memories of Oracle. Not. Um, let's just say that we ended up printing out the entire Oracle error messages into a folder so that when something went wrong, we could figure out what it was. Because Oracle's typical response to anything that's not completely correct is Oracle error 9002. Full stop. I, I met a guy once who apparently had a job just because he knew those error codes. 
and and you know like he apparently saved the company so much time because they didn't have to go look it up they just go hey pete like what's you know what is a 9002 and he'd go hang on it's this i can actually believe that we printed them out bound them in a file and indexed it by error number so that we could look it up in less than 10 minutes every time something went wrong you think you think being a database there'd be a table right that you could do a select from <laughs> error codes where error number equals or something yeah you'd think that i mean sql's got one of them oracle i get the impression half the design philosophy around oracle is make it complicated and hard to understand yeah that that uh, matches my experience yeah, mine too. Well, like an object, arguably, I only had it in varsity as a subject all the way through, and I don't know why. But I mean, I studied IT management, and they insisted like that's going to be your technical exposure, not programming language, not Excel scripting or something. Oracle, and it's a T SQL. What's the programming script in Oracle? PLSQL. PLSQL, like that. That's what you need for IT management. It's ridiculous. No, <laughs> and. <laughs> And uh, after the the Oracle Valley, Oracle, more Oracle, some MS Access, a encounter with Oracle Reports, which has to take the title of the absolute worst reporting language ever invented, partially for having no undo button. If you made a mistake, you reverted to your last save. That was pretty much the only way you could fix things. Um, then went into web development. We're talking classic ASP era here, so some web development with. SQL Server backends. That was my first encounter with SQL Server itself. And that was SQL Server? 2000. That would have been 2000. Um, we're talking, this would have been in 2001. So yes, that would have been SQL 2000. And um, and then from there, you kind of, like at least from our pre-call discussions, kind of just drifted more and more into the, the world of SQL Server. Pretty much. Um, left the software development company, joined First National Bank for a bit bit of a um, couple of other small jobs in between they needed they didn't have any dbas and they had database performance problems got some external consultants in and one of them said we need your best database person to work with and they sort of gail needs knows how to write complex queries and by complex queries they meant queries with a join in them so i ended up being the token company representative for these um, consultants who pretty much taught me the basics of performance tuning for databases. Which in itself is a black art. Hell of a black art. Um, it's not actually that hard, but it you've got to know what you've got to know the database fairly well to, to do it properly. Yeah, so from First National went on to APSA, software development, database performance tuning, and all that kind of thing there. And then took a job with the consultants that I'd worked with at First National and spent five years doing consulting work again database performance tuning mostly, the occasional piece of development work, database development work. I haven't touched C-sharp except as a hobby in ever. I haven't done front-end development for a company since probably, yeah, probably First National. And lately? I've been working for Intellect Software for the last three years on their data solution side. Again, mostly doing database performance tuning. Um, clients, not our systems, we don't have any of our own systems really, but doing performance tuning for clients, big systems, small systems, all sorts of various ones. And the last six months or so has been um, getting into the, I'll call it advanced, analy uh, advanced analytics, the machine learning 
the, the analysis side of the data as well. Cool. Yeah, I'm curious to learn a bit more about that. But before we go there, I would just want to ask around the performance tuning, is there any, I mean, years of experience, any basic tips that you can dispense, some some wisdom, some common mistakes you've seen people do, uh, little things that they can look at, like missing indexes or, you know, like faster disks or any, any kind of gems that could help people off the bat? Oh, dear. <laughs> that's, that's a large one. Um, the first one would be spec your servers correctly, because I keep seeing production servers with stupid hardware specs. I actually saw one about three months ago. This is a production server with six or so databases on it for a fairly large company with four gigs of memory in it. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure my phone has more than four gigs of memory. I mean, the desktop PC that I'm sitting at at the moment has 32 gigs in it. That's a gaming desktop. Yeah, no, that, that's a, <laughs> a bad one. And I guess... Um, the same goes for disks. Disks are an interesting one, and faster is better, but it gets very, very complicated, especially when you're dealing with SANS. Um, memory, however, hides a wealth of IOSIMs. You can have slow disks if you've got enough memory that SQL doesn't bother with the disks. So the, I can hide bad disks with memory, but if I don't have enough memory, all the disk problems are just going to be exaggerated and show up far, far worse than they would otherwise. Oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm going out in the limb here. I might get lynched for this. But I guess also the reality is a lot of data sets are actually small and could easily probably fit into working memory on an 8 or 16 gig machine or 32 two gigs. And memory is so cheap these days that you don't have an excuse anymore to run that <laughs> 4 gig production database. And to be honest, if you came to me today and said production server 32 gigs, I'd start laughing. Because yeah, I was just I was just gonna say, Ken, like today, 128 to 512 gigs of RAM. I mean, come on, that's more realistic, yep. right? 64 yeah. is the yeah, starting no. area. 128 is nice. Let's keep going. Mm. Now I get that. I was just meant like, how many things are deployed just to like Heroku style stuff or like Google Cloud or some AWS thingy, and the, everybody thinks it's the the next magical unicorn that's going to change the world but in the end only have a few hundred thousand rows scattered out over a few tables and that's kind of what i was meaning instead of overshooting but yeah if you're serious workload definitely definitely at past summits late october there was one session by the microsoft dev team one of the advantages of having past summit in seattle is microsoft sends the entire sql dev team over to the conference for the entire duration of the conference you, c you can't walk around without running into a SQL Server developer, and I mean one of the dev team. But we had a session where Lindsay Allen, um, the she's, I think, the chief senior program manager for SQL Server uh, development, where she was talking about a server that she had just finished doing a workload test on. 960 processor cores and 24 terabytes of memory. That sounds much more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> And and that means you don't need to shard your database. It'll probably all fit in there. On one of those things? <laughs> probably. Um, that's actually the max size that Windows Server 2016 can support. So she was just testing at the most extreme scale. I mean, no, most people are not going to have something even remotely close to that. Yeah, but I guess it's good to know that you're covered. <laughs> and um, 
an app like other than hardware let's say somebody does have a sufficiently spec machine is there what, what's typically the most low-hanging fruit that they can fix on the applications or their data the database itself indexes most systems when i'm looking at them when i when the client says we have performance problems i go in and have a look and most tables don't have any indexes on them shield will be the primary key which itself is an index but other than that it's very common to find very busy tables with absolutely no indexes on them. Indexing is not that hard. There's some basic rules, but you've got to know your workload. You can't create indexes without knowing the workload that runs against the table. So it does become a little difficult to figure out what the good indexes are. But there's enough tools these days that um, will allow you to do that. SQL's got a missing index DMV. I mean, it's not... It's certainly not something that you just take and use without thinking, but it's a good first... It's a good place to start with what indexes does SQL Server think it's missing. And what kind of indexes does SQL Server support? Oh, that's a long list. Um, for the majority of tables, it's the clustered and the non-clustered indexes. That's the traditional indexes we've had ever since SQL Server existed. We've got XML indexes now for XML columns. We've got spatial indexes for the geometry and geography columns. We've got full text indexes for when you need to do complicated text searches. Those things are quite a beast to work with. And we've got column store indexes now, clustered and non-clustered column store indexes, based on the same technology as the Vertipack in Excel from a couple of years ago. And most recently, we've got the in-memory tables. Um, SQL Server 2014 and 2016 supported in-memory tables, tables that do Is not it? have a disk representation. And those like at all, it's it's not just pin tables. They're just no, purely no, no. in memory. No, 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 it's it's not pin table. Come back, not in, not at all. Um, these tables do not have a disk storage. They are in memory. They cannot be anywhere else. And those things have hash and range indexes. So we've got a large collection of indexes these days. When you say clustered and non-clustered, is that to the data type or the SQL Server setup? Like when you've got multiple nodes or just the, the data structure No, nothing structure to do with itself. SQL clustering. A clustered index is an index that contains the table itself. A non-clustered index is a secondary structure. Um, think of it like the page numbers in a book are the clustered index, and the index at the back is a non-clustered index. Right, thanks. Yeah, so I guess the means monitor your database and see what tools you have available. And MySQL's got the slow query log that can also help you figure out if you need to index something. I don't know if you can ask it to say what the what the missing indexes potentially are. That sounds like a neat feature, but I yeah, take it with a grain of salt. And I don't know, Postgres, Lendas, do you know if Postgres had something similar to a slow query log? Yeah, Postgres got some pretty advanced stuff as well as um, something similar to that, what do you call it, DMV feature Dynamic in SQL management Server? Views. Where, yeah. Uh, so Postgres will try to tell you where you should be creating indexes or even further now, I think Postgres has got that analyze and explain mode. So, you know, if you're getting slow queries, you can run it through and it'll tell you where it's uh, doing full table scans and what the sort of load time of that table is. That's a, that's a common place to look at indexing. Yeah, I'd certainly be looking for table scans when I'm doing a first analysis. But what I typically do is get a, a representation of the workload, basically capture uh, the workload on the server for two or three hours run it through some analysis scripts and figure out what queries are taking the largest percentage of resources, which queries are using the most CPU, are using the most reads, are taking the longest, and just work on those. 
Yeah, and Ken, then there's like obvious things, like if you've got a small table that's getting hit a lot, it's a kind of no-brainer to index certain things in it, whereas big tables, you have to be a lot more careful. Also, like if a table's getting written to a lot, you must remember that all the all the updates and inserts will uh, cause hammer the indexes. Yeah, will cause multiple writes. Yeah, yeah, no, I know it's a uh, yeah. I've I've definitely seen where firsthand where indexing everything leads to absolute chaos as well, a different kind of problem. But it's just I think it's nice to know for people that do experience these problems that might not have access to professional resources to help them figure it out to at least have something to go prod and pull or you know to start searching or exploring stack overflow or look through their printed out index of oracle documentation well for some well like gail was saying it's important to understand what your workload is and by that we mean like is it a write heavy database like ie is this database just sort of accepting a lot of transactions all the time some sort of OLTP type stuff, or is it very read heavy? You know, it's like a big reporting database, and that gives you a start to trying to think about where you could possibly optimize things. I wish you got a recorded presentation that I did at SQL Bits a couple of years ago. Um, they make all of their presentations available, the recordings available. So I'll give that to you. You can put it in the show notes. Hmm. Mm, definitely. Thanks. I want to take a moment to tell you about Officeing. OfficeZen connects you with more than 350 South African companies that are hiring developers. Instead of dealing with recruiters or applying to dozens of jobs individually, on OfficeZen, companies apply to you. To get started, just sign up on OfficeZen.com and build a profile. Once you're ready, your profile is made visible to the companies hiring on OfficeZen. Companies interested in you will send you an interview request with details about the job, including upfront salary info. So if you're looking for work or want to hire developers, check them out at OfficeZen.com. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. Ooh, I guess something else I wanted to ask, um, since you were at Bath now and, and fairly well connected with the world of SQL Server, this exciting, fairly recent news now of SQL Server SQL on Linux. SQL Server on Linux, yes. Um, when I first heard that, I, I would check the date to make sure it wasn't April, because it's been a... A standard April Fool's joke for the, probably the last five years, and now it's happened. I did not see this one coming. Had I had absolutely no warning that they were working on it. All of a sudden, hey guys, we've got SQL Server running on Linux. Is it the the? I don't want to go too long. I just want to kind of like for people that just pick this up like me in Twitter headlines and don't click through. Is it the full featured SQL Server or is it a full down version? Absolutely. Okay. Everything oh, wow. that was on wow. that's on SQL Server on Windows is on SQL Server on Linux. The one exception from what I've heard, there's no SQL agent, so there's no scheduling um, methodology. But uh, Linux should have its own schedulers. It also includes all the analytics servers, the whole lot, Kenneth. Wow. No, no, I mean, that's, that's a, a really impressive feat from them. I mean, like, I guess company-wise direction and technology to take something that they've built on for so long obviously i get you know optimized for windows and just go yeah it runs on a whole new platform that must have been a monstrous effort it's certainly very very interesting and uh what do you like i guess lin you as well you gotta keep your finger on the pulse but what do you think the the impetus is for this do they want to like yeah i don't know um, i've got some ideas it's a shot across Oracle's bow, a big one, especially since when 
they they announced this as they released SQL Server 2016 earlier this year. So they announced the SQL Server on Linux. It was in private preview at the time. It's now in public preview. They announced the launch of SQL Server 2016, the fact that they were putting SQL Server on Linux, and at the same time they announced a... I'll use the word amnesty, though it's probably the wrong term. They announced a program where if you have an Oracle license and you're willing to switch to SQL Server, we'll give you the licenses for free, the SQL licenses. Wow. Wow. It it was a (laughs) one-month offer, um, one- or two-month offer, so it's it's expired by now. But no, they're they're gunning for Oracle big time. Okay, that that actually makes a lot more sense. I thought it maybe had something to do with... Azure and the cloud aspirations, but I mean, like I said, I just that as well because now you can run SQL Server in Linux on Azure, so they're making the cloud their cloud offering more interesting for people who don't have the Windows background, who want to run a database, want to run it in Azure for whatever reason, um, but they don't have the Windows background. You could previously run Oracle on Linux in Azure of all things, but now you can actually go run SQL on Linux in Azure as well. I guess, and I'm sure the Azure people will make re- pretty sure that it's a well-supported offering and that it's fast and snappy. Well, well, Ken, if you think about it in a different way, like Microsoft's got a whole lot of really great tools that you couldn't get unless you got Windows, right? You had mm, you had yes. to have Windows. And so I think another way to think about it is now you can go and get these great tools, but you don't have to have Windows. Like it's kind of simple in that way. Yep. Yeah, no, they definitely opened the their market potential. And it's great. Everybody's got more choice in the end now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we're running Postgres, we could just run SQL Server. Like, you don't have to go and change absolutely everything just to get the database. And now's um, .NET open source, PowerShell open source, Visual Studio on Mac, Visual Studio on Linux. Yeah, it's it's interesting times. It's about mm, about it's, ten years too late, but they're finally realizing that the operating <laughs> no, the, the operating system doesn't matter. It's what matters is the applications that we want to get hold of. You know, we want to do stuff, and if if you know, it's it's like you want to do stuff, but it has to be an afford, right? Like that's not the important thing. You want to be able to travel from city to city, and you know, some sort of thinly stretched analogy there i watched a demo at the connect online event that was last week the very first demo used a mac wrote node.js deployed it to docker from visual studio yeah and that's another place you want to use sql servers in docker yes yes indeed and the first ctp of sql server v next you can go and download in a docker container is that still descending off the Windows Docker image, or is it a Linux Docker image now? I haven't looked. I'm going to guess Linux, but I'd have to go and look at it. But if you go to the download page for the first CDP for SQL Server vNext, that's the next major version, whatever it'll end up being called, you can download it for Windows, Linux, Mac, Docker, or straight into Azure. Yeah, that's yeah, it's amazing. And, and also mentioning all the open source i think the news came out last week also that microsoft's now the biggest active contributor on github to open source biggest contributor on github to open source and a platinum member of the linux foundation of all things yes yes 
Yeah, some pretty uh, freaked out people there in the Linux Foundation. No, I think it's it's amazing. I mean, kudos to everybody there that's pulling us off. Nobody saw this coming, <laughs> and it's for the for the better in the end. So, but um, yeah, I think I want to push us on a bit. Um, I'm I'm curious. Also, like a, a you said, you started moving into the analytics space this past six months, and then like you you chose the word very very carefully. Um, I guess another way to to say is like people would stereotype it as as big data, and. <clears throat> I bring that up because at the Intellect Dev Day, you had this fantastic definition for for big data, um, and I wanted to give that, please, but also give us like some of the other ones you mentioned that day during your presentation. Yes, so big data and advanced analytics not necessarily related, not necessarily definitely not the same thing. Can be related. I used yes, I used the term advanced analytics very carefully. Um, so big data, very loose, very nebulous term. If you ask 10 people what big data is, you'll probably get about 15 answers. The general sense for big data is it's data that's too large, too fast, too varied to be treated with traditional methods. So you're not just going to go dump it into a database table and deal with it later. You need either some unstructured data store, a data lake, perhaps stream analytics, perhaps some custom development work, something to manage, store, interpret it. So that's your big data. Big data is more about, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much, you can have big data without doing anything with it. I mean, if you're capturing stuff off Twitter, for example, and tossing it into I know as your data lake, let's say as an example, you're dealing with big data, though you're not actually doing anything with it. Advanced analytics has a s definitely a different meaning. Advanced analytics is more what you're doing with data. It doesn't matter what the kind of data is, if that makes any sense. Yes. Okay, so which do you want to go into, big data or advanced analytics? Well, I guess the big data just first, I think it's, a very loaded term and, and it means so many different things to so many different people. And I mean, there's two, two parts that at least from, from my point of view, is I think people think there's some magical size limit. And if you're underneath like X terabytes or gigabytes, you know, hundreds of gigs of data, it's not big data. And then when you magically tick over this number that suddenly it's big data and it needs to be handled uh, completely differently. Uh, that's kind of the one. So I guess the volume is not so much part of the deciding uh, factor. Um, and I guess that for me, it's like your Twitter example kind of falls in that. If you're just saving millions of tweets into a single table in the database and not doing anything with it, and the data's just coming in at a steady cadence, I mean, is that big data or is that a lot Good question. of data? Um Yes, big data is a heavily loaded term, unfortunately, which is very nice for software vendors because they can sell you big data solutions without having to tell you what they do. So yep. if you go and read into the definitions and the interpretations, the big data is characterized by what they call the, the three Vs, volume, velocity, and variety. So volume alone, no, volume alone is not going to tell me that something is big data. If I'm looking at a 10 terabyte transactional 
data set, um, let's say the sales data from pick and pay for the last five years, that's a lot of data. But I wouldn't characterize it as big data because it's very much transactional. It's very structured. It might be coming fast. It might not. But it's data of a particular form. I don't need anything unusual. I don't need any new methods. I don't need any new tools to deal with pick and pay's transactional data. I might need a big server. Mm. I might need some complicated queries. But I don't need to fetch Hadoop out or I don't need to go and store it in a data lake or write up MapReduce jobs. They might work, but I don't need to change what I'm doing just to deal with a lot of data. Velocity alone, also not necessarily a indication of big data. I've worked with a company, and this is years back, that was getting thousands and thousands of records a second and putting it into a relational database table. And it went in just fine. And they analyzed it later. A lot of data, quite fast, yes. Probably not what people generally mean by big data, though. And then the last ones, the varied. And I think, at least for me, that's kind of the, actually the the differentiator. But I mean, it's also so, such a broad thing. What does it actually mean to have varied data? Varied in this case means it doesn't have a, a single form. So let's let's go have a look at a social some of the social media stuff. So I pull in tweets, I pull in Facebook likes, I pull in um, Twitter mentions, Twitter likes, retweets. What else? Too many. I pull in Google, Google Plus um, posts. I'm apparently Instagram photos, Instagram photos, WhatsApp mentions if you can, Tumblr, Skype, all that kind of thing. Now, now we have a lot of data. Firstly, it's coming bloody fast. I mean, Twitter on its own. Now add Facebook. Now add all the others. We've got a whole bunch of this stuff. We're coming really fast. It does not have a single form. I've got Twitter likes, I've got Twitter retweets, I've got Facebook likes, I've got Facebook posts, I've got Facebook shares. It's not a single form. Contrast that with pick and pay's transactional data, which would be more along the lines of customer X bought three oranges, two bags of sugar, and a bottle of milk from, I don't know, pick and pay East Rand Mall on this date and paid this amount for it. Transactional data is has a particular form to it. Big data typically doesn't. Typically with big data, you drop it somewhere and then decide what you're going to do with it later or potentially deal with it as it comes past. Look at it, what you're interested in goes one place, what you're not interested in goes somewhere else. And you've used a, a term twice on a data lake. I don't think I've heard that before. Um, data lake itself, Azure, it's an Azure feature, but the term is not specifically Azure. It's somewhere that you can just toss data. You don't need a structure. It doesn't have a structure when it goes in. It can have a structure when it comes out. You could consider it something similar to document databases, except with document databases, you typically have documents of the same form. You'd have multiple documents of the same form. With a data lake, you're not necessarily going to have that. We'll drop in uh, several PDFs, all the Twitter stuff, the entire scraping of some website or other, and just toss it in there and let it sit. Okay, that makes sense. It's a... Yeah, it's quite a nice term. Um, yeah, so I guess the challenge is, is that, that you have all this varied information and it's all um, unstructured and things like that. So how do you even begin deciding um, what's relevant and what 
sort of things you can get out of this big data? Good question. And that is, you've just hit on the the um, nugget of what is big data. With If we go back to our transactional data, I know precisely what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to sum up my sales per product, per store, per day, and I'm going to figure out you know, what sells well, what sells well together, that kind of stuff. With big data, you often store it and then figure out later whether you can get anything of value out of it or not and come back later for, hmm, maybe I'll have another look at this for different questions. So yes, big data it is part of the concept of big data that you don't necessarily know what you're going to do with it when you collect it. You don't know the right questions. You don't know the right queries. You don't know the useful analysis. You'll figure that out once you've got it all. So it's almost about acquiring as much as possible so that because you don't know what your queries are that you're going to have to fulfill later. Grab everything, store it, and figure it out later. And that probably comes, I mean, other than, well, I guess the storage challenges in itself can be huge depending on who you are and what kind of data you're working with. Um, but I guess other than storing all of this stuff, um, what are some of the other kind of challenges that you have to cope with? Keep in mind that I don't work on big data myself, so I'm speaking very much secondhand here. Storage is going to be fun. Mm. I mean, The cloud's actually lovely for that. I mean, Azure's blob storage is what? A US cents per terabyte per month or something like that? It's ridiculously cheap. Figuring out what you're going to do with it is one of the biggest yeah. challenges. Yeah, Figuring out how you're going to do with it figuring out how to get some sensible meaning out of it and whether the data, the results you've got out, whether the answers you've got out actually do have any meaning. Um, data will tell you anything if you torture it enough. And I guess that's true. And this is probably where the advanced analytics um, starts coming into the yes, interview. Yes, um, advanced analytics. So when, we, when people talk about advanced analytics, they talk about typically three types of reports um, results from data. Descriptive analytics is what we've been doing for a very long time. What did, what happened? How much did we sell yesterday? How much of each product have we sold yesterday? That kind of thing. That's your typical reports that you get off most database systems would fall under the category of descriptive analytics. How much money did we make? Did we make our target this quarter, etc., etc.? The next level up, and this is where we start getting into the advanced analytics, is what we call predictive analytics. And this has come out of, in fact, out of artificial intelligence research. It's a machine learning area. Machine learning, we give computers data, lots of it, algorithms, and they learn from the data that's probably a loaded term there. We're not talking intelligence here. We're talking figuring out patterns mm. and extrapolating from patterns. So take algorithms, take data, lots of data. The more, the better. And apply the machine learning algorithms, apply the data to the machine learning algorithms. You get what's called a trained model. You can then use this trained model to make predictions about what will happen. So we've changed our analytics from how much did we sell yesterday to 
how much are we likely to sell tomorrow? Will we meet our target? What products are going to sell best next month? And this kind of thing's been in use for a long time, but very specialized. Two of the areas where it's been heavily used are fraud detection and loan um, predictions. Will this person default on a loan? Is this, is this new transaction that I've never seen before fraudulent or not? Those are very interesting questions, and there's been a lot of research into those. Oh, you got some good examples there of the predictive analytics. I was just gonna gonna ask: Are you guys? I mean, as much as you can say, is, is this something you're starting to see more customers actually yes. ask for? It's already been in use in some places. You'll quite a few large companies will have teams of data scientists, um, quantitative analysis analysts especially your financial organizations. But yes, I'm starting to see it more and more from other clients, partially in the sense of what is this going to do for us? But also in the sense of we've heard about this stuff. Can you make it do magic for us? So yes, we're definitely starting to see this. We're way behind. Um, it's been a big thing in the US. As usual, we're falling a year or two behind. But it's very much a big thing in the US already and Europe. Um, and it's starting to show up here as well. And what are some of the tools um, involved in here? I mean, if somebody wants to go double around and let's say, I mean, you need data. Let's say they just grab one of the bigger open source data sets available online as a starting point. Because it doesn't matter what the data is. No, you, you kind of want real, real data, data for this, not fictional. Fictional data doesn't tend to have the patterns that real data has. Oh, yeah, sorry, I mean, more like not their own company yes. stuff, but something uh, Public repositories, there's a whole bunch of it. In fact, the US government's one of the best places to go and get this stuff from. The amount of data they publish is astounding. Okay, so go get some data. Two languages which are heavily used for this, Python and R, which is why I've been studying R. Um, Azure's got machine learning capabilities as well. It can be done in Java. There's machine learning libraries for Java, but I would say that if you know Python, great. You can use the there's machine learning libraries for Python or learn R. In fact, I would go as far as to say that just about any data professional these days should be learning R or Python or both. And then what would be a good kind of hello world to play out if you've now got Python installed or Okay, R I don't know for Python because I don't set. actually work with Python. I've been using R. One of the built-in data sets in R, as in when you install the language, you get these sample data sets with it. Um, one of the built-in data sets is the iris data set. It's petal and sepal lengths for various iris species. One of the simplest ones is a decision tree on the iris data. You Basically, decision tree is a algorithm that says, that classifies things, one of its forms. So for example, is the petal greater than so many centimeters and the sepal less than so many centimeters wide? If so, it's this species. Otherwise, it's that species. It's basically, it's a lot of if-then in a tree form. Um, sorting out a decision tree on the iris data is absolutely dead simple. It's probably six lines of code in R. And oh, that is nice. And I can't remember, I listened to another podcast a while ago on, I think it might have been on TensorFlow, actually. Um, but it was interesting that we're talking about decision trees versus machine learning algorithms. And 
a lot of times how the decision trees are favored uh, by business because they're actually predictable, although they can become a, a big mess of if yeah. else, if else. Yes, decision trees are predictable and you can explain them, which is very important in some areas. For example, in the US, loan predictions, if you're going to turn somebody down for a bank loan, you have to explain why. You have to tell them what it is that denied them the loan. With a decision tree, you can look at the tree and go, ah, you were denied the loan because this, 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 and this. Whereas um, TensorFlow, as far as I'm aware, is a neural network library. It's the deep learning, it's Google's deep learning stuff, if I'm not mistaken. So neural nets are not yes. predictable. And you cannot take a neural net and say why it gave us a particular answer. They are black boxes. You put data in, you get results out. You cannot ask them why. It has no meaning. Yeah, no, I must say, that didn't occur to me to think through this from a compliance point of view, but the loan, loan example is a great one of, of that. Yeah, and sometimes even if you're not looking at a compliance thing, you need to figure out why... Why did it go that way? Why has it classified it this way? Especially if you've, say, built a model and you're testing the model and it's predicting wrong. It's a case of why is it predicting wrong? Can I figure out what's actually gone wrong with the algorithm? With decision trees, you might be able to. With neural networks, no. Throw them away and train them again. It's about the only thing you can do because they're, just, they're black boxes. And quite a few of the machine learning algorithms are complete black boxes. Um, support vector machines are another one. Why Why did it come up with that number? I don't know. Another big use case is, of course, medical diagnostics, where you definitely want to know the chain of reasoning. Oh, yes. Uh, medical diagnostics, image recognition for, yeah, image recognition on the things like cancer cells, big, big use. I've seen that done with neural networks, though. Well, the image recognition, sure, but just imagine the scenario where somebody walks into a doctor's office and says, you know, I've got a sore head, and then going through like a diagnostic procedure, you want uh, some visibility of, of that process so that when when the algorithm comes up and says, well, you've got a brain tumor and you're about <laughs> to die, you want to be able to say, hang on. Can I get can a second just, opinion uh, from another neural network? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, or it just says, no, it's definite. It's 97% probable that you're going to die this afternoon. Whoa. I must admit, I haven't seen machine learning used for medical diagnostics yet, probably because it's one of those things that if you get it wrong, it's got serious consequences. But things like cancer cell recognition, yes, certainly been done that way. I'm not so sure we wanted it replacing the, um, the local GP anytime soon. Yeah, no. When we had Gilliam on and we talked a bit about machine learning stuff, he said, oh, it's been a while now, I hope I get it right. Um, he said, there's a, in the UK, <clears throat> they're matching up photos of eyes with past um, prognosis. So they're using, the, let the software look at all the eyes, look at all the uh, prognosis from the doctor and match up and say, look, an eye that looks like this, I've had these things. But the way they are rolling this out and giving this to the doctors is it's very much like a supporting, like just the actual voice and the doctors don't even need to use it. They they went to say like these algorithms can help the doctor. Maybe it can give them something else to look at, but it will never ever like, well, at least now they say it will never uh, surpass the doctor's authority 
Like they have the final say. They know they've got all these experience. Yeah, because we can't teach these algorithms. They learn from data. That's all they do. They don't have the whole. They don't have that reasoning that humans have. We are nowhere near a computer that mm. can actually reason. Yeah, no. But but is there a, a style of analytics that this black box machine learning AI stuff might be well suited to? Uh, most of the um, uh, but their predictive analytics, you can use neural networks, you can use support vector machines, you can use decision trees. It's going to depend on your problem. It's going to depend on your data. And in a lot of cases, you'll try multiple different models, see which one works best. Very much a trial. Yeah, I was just going to say. Sorry. It's very much a trial and error thing. Yeah, it might make sense to run the decision tree and your neural net side by side. And the one might flag, like maybe the neural net flags something yeah, we're starting to see, through the decision um, tree or vice versa. I guess it's never Think really... of the term hybrid algorithms. So boosted decision trees, boosted decision forests, decision trees that have other things built into them. Uh, but from what I can gather, and this is from looking at the Kaggle competition, boosted decision forests and deep learning neural networks are pretty much where things are at the moment they're the most they're the ones that win most of the competitions uh, kenneth if you if you think about this in a different way these a lot of these algorithms are like super advanced search techniques across very like random data so you're going to use them to try and point you in a direction a lot of the time say I have absolutely no idea where to look. Like maybe, maybe these algorithms can give me some idea of where to look, and then a combination of those algorithms together with something that's kind of pretty old school, like an expert system, can give you a bigger picture of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, these things are not. I mean, these things are not going to tell you the why. They're going to tell you that something is. So let's say, for example. We use a neural network to to predict whether something is fraud or not. It's not going to tell you anything about why the person committed fraud, why this particular account was used, why that customer, why that merchant was hit. It's going to tell you, this looks like a fraudulent transaction. But what you do with it, that's up to you. That's up to the person looking at the results from the systems. It's very much a supporting act. Yeah, it is. And it it can't necessarily predict causation. It can tell you that this and this and this appear to correlate with that. But it can't tell you that one causes the other. And get it wrong, and you can very easily have a case where um, the egg breaking caused it to fall off the counter, which, of course, is completely wrong, completely the wrong way around. Oh, that's a good example. <laughs> and uh, is there any other form of um, advanced analytics other than the descriptive and the yeah? There's one more. I don't see this, this one very data. often. I've people talk about it, and by by people I mean conferences and presentations and that kind of thing. I haven't seen this ever wanted by a client yet, and this is prescriptive analytics. This is actually the next step on from predictive. So um, descriptive is what we've been doing for decades. You know, they get me a report on the sales for this quarter. Predictive is the next step beyond that. Tell me what my totals for next quarter are likely going to be. And it's, it's statistical and there's errors involved. 
Prescriptive is the next step even beyond that. Tell me what I should do to get these results. For example, if we're looking back at sales, did I meet my target last quarter? That's your descriptive analytics. Will I meet my target next quarter is your predictive analytics. And what do I need to do to meet my target next quarter becomes prescriptive analytics. And that last one is really, really difficult. I had not seen very much use of it at the moment. Deal. No, yeah, I can just imagine. So it's like a. What it will likely be is running various models, machine learning models under various conditions. If we do this, what will the results be? If we do this, what will the results be? Run enough of them, and you can see which where where the trend tends to. What what seems to be the suggestion? I'm guessing that shopping centers or supermarkets do a little bit of this in the sense that things get grouped together on shelves that you wouldn't think belonged together on shelves. Now, part of that is descriptive. When people buy strawberries, they usually buy cream. So we put the cream and the strawberries together on the shelf. But it might also be a little bit of the of the prescriptive. Run various models of um, customer behavior models and see which one has people buying the most things. You're really getting into deep statistics and complicated data analysis by this point, though. I was just going to ask, that sounds, and I might be butchering it, isn't the Monte Carlo statistical model is kind of something like this where you give it a bunch of input data and basically just brute force your way through until it gives you the outcome that you kind of want, and then you can backtrack Unfortunately, and see statistics was one thing I did not there. take at university, and that's on my studying list for next month. So I actually can't answer that because I don't even know what a Monte Carlo is. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just heard it once at a startup I was involved with a few years ago, like did a bunch of financial modeling, and, and that was one of the bigger ones that you would get the, the Baines and the McKenzie's of the world involved to do Monte Carlo stuff for mines. They would yeah, I use it to do all kinds of stuff around mines, massive manufacturing. And it sounds like this, but I'm, I'm a bit hazy on it. But it's very more brute force Yeah, it could well approach. be. I, I need to dig into it. And this, as I said, this one's a bit more theoretical. I've never seen a client do it yet. Um, I've never even seen anyone ask for it yet. I know it's been done in some places. Um, I'm just not personally involved in it and haven't got any experience in it. Guess another thing might just be entrepreneurs, for instance, well, that's some, don't want that's to be told what them, to do. Really. Um, sure. Well, it's just it has been so interesting so far. Thanks. I'm just getting weary of time as well. Is there anything important around big data and this new generation of analytics that that? we still need to cover especially if there's like myths to dispel and, and maybe shine some light on something for people to help them in their own research to like stay on nothing i can not think of at this point the, um into the bushes i will say one thing and that is that microsoft is going all in on this analytics side on the data intelligence side if you go and look at what they've been up to recently they are putting a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of investment into this whole thing from voice recognition, image recognition, all of that kind of thing. For, as some examples of where we are, and this this is actually machine learning, it's just 
machine learning used for different things. Um, I don't know if any of you have used Skype's automatic translate feature. No. I've heard of it, but I haven't used it myself. Okay, so basically the premise of it is that you, speaking English, have a conversation with somebody in France speaking French, and Skype translates on the fly in both directions. In essence, we've got a universal translator, and it's and it's accurate enough that it, it's actually very, very accurate. It's not perfect. It's going to miss, miss up. It's going to get colloquialisms wrong, but it's good enough that you can have a conversation with someone speaking a foreign language that you do not understand, and you're both fine. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So... um well, what if you these Microsoft products, if you can call them by name? Because I'm just, I asked because, you know, like with my feet, like in the open source world, I know, you know, IBM's got their Watson stuff and, and Google's got their speech and text and image APIs and, and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's, you know, for me, it just, I know there's more options and stuff to go play with, but I guess it might also be somebody sitting in the Microsoft world and they just maybe only hear about all the Google stuff. And they just don't know that they have the same options that's like available at the turn of a key. The one I'd say, sorry, the one I'd say look at is the cognitive services from Microsoft. Um, that's the image recognition, speech recognition services. So that's doing things like computer vision, um, face recognition, speech recognition, speaker recognition, which is slightly different. Yes, it can tell who's talking as well as what's been said. Linguistical analysis, translators, all sorts of things. And on the face recognition, it is remarkably accurate. Um, at the Connect event last week, one of the demos was a uh, one of the Microsoft dev developers used, I think it was the Surface, Surface Book, or it might have been a phone. I'm not quite sure which it was. Facial recognition, voice recognition to log into an application. No passwords, took a photo, identified the photo, asked for a phrase to be spoken, recognized the voice, recognized the words been spoken. Basically, what she did was wow. order, no, I think it was book a bicycle from a rental, a bicycle rental agency by voice with facial recognition to log it. Pretty much. No, that's great. That's like so having Siri. For the people on the Microsoft side, the cognitive services would be the first place to look if you're looking to use the stuff in your own development. Uh, the, the Cortana Analytics Suite is also very interesting. It's not so much in your app, but it's also a very interesting thing to look at. I don't have that up on my screen at the moment, so I'm not going to go and talk too much about that. Uh, but the Microsoft Microsoft Research is also doing some phenomenally interesting things. Uh, they've, they're always working on the artificial intelligence side. I can imagine, given just what came out of Microsoft proper. Oh, a lot of this stuff year, is from research. The stuff that's got to be in research. Research starts and then it goes over to the main company and gets turned into products and applications and APIs and services. And the cognitive services, are they also available via like web APIs through Azure? Um, if you just want to call into it from an external I'm not 100% sure. Have I haven't it? worked with it so much. What I'm going to suggest is go and have a look at the Microsoft site for on their cognitive services side. They've got full documentation. They've got full API references. I'm going to guess it's using Azure, the power of Azure. 
I've had no guesses. I'm looking at the website. It's using Azure. So the cognitive services are actually mm, running was... on Azure. So you need Azure accounts and all the rest of it. That's not a big deal. And they can they do this because that's where the computing power is. So they don't need to use the processing power no, of your, your phone or your tablet or whatever no, it is great. that you're working with. The the stuff you're trying to interpret goes to Azure, gets processed there, and the results come back. Awesome. Oh, no, thanks a lot. Is there anything, Chantal, Len, anything we need to, to cover still? Uh, not from my side, thanks. Um, I guess I have just one more question, and um, it's about the ethics of big data and collecting <laughs> oh, it and things really, like that. Oh, that's a really, big topic. I actually had this question when I gave a lecture at the university um, about the ethics of it, which was promptly followed by another of the students suggesting that he could sell other people's data and make a good amount of money off it. I'm sort of, right, so there's the, there's the answer to your ethics question. At this point, there's no laws around it because it's way too new. Be careful, though. Um, people don't typically like so, – some of this stuff is scary. Some of this stuff is creepy, and you definitely have to be very, very careful, even if you're not stepping on legal boundaries, as to what you're doing with people's data. It's entirely possible by this point to use cameras in a shopping mall to identify where people go and this is individual people, not the, the, the crowd, which shops people go to, how long they spend in them, where they go for lunch, where they walk. You can tell that. It's not even hard any longer. Whether it's a good thing to do, uh, not so much. And I guess some of the social media data that's out there, um, Twitter and Facebook posts and things, you're actually like voluntarily giving um, these companies this information by tweeting things and posting pictures of yourself and things like that yes you are and it would be interesting to go and have a read through their terms and conditions there's some fun clauses in them sometimes as an example uber our all of our favorite ride uh, ride share company recently changed their terms and conditions to include a clause stating that they own all of your data and they may do with it what they want most people don't read terms and conditions. Well, I had no idea. Yeah, I think when Pokemon Go came out, that was also one of the big things people read through the terms and went, uh, Niantic says that your information is treated like a business asset or something. It was oh. also like scary verbiage. I don't know if it's still the case. I wouldn't be overly surprised. I've seen some very noise. nasty things embedded in the TNCs. But typically, yes, if you're providing information to a company, they'll do with, what, with it what they want. Another way to think about it, if you're not paying for the service, you are the product. Yeah, that is such a good motto to <laughs> to live by. And I guess it's also, in a way, context-specific. I, I remember from, from your talk, you gave this example of um, parents or family or somebody getting personalized smart shopper vouchers and being all surprised at how did pick and pay no that they wanted these or they, they buy these specific things. And <laughs> it is so blatantly obvious. Yeah, that was my mother. Um, she's not used to this. She's from an earlier generation where this wasn't done and she just didn't consider it that this was possible. Yeah, I, I tore up an old expired set of vouchers for my father-in-law in the weekend as well. <laughs> I was just like, and I chuckled when I saw it. But that's, a, is it? I guess, a good use of that data. But if one of... Well, 
it can be useful, but they're also going to try and lead you to other products and higher margin stuff. But it's a shopping reward thing. I was saying, but they can then sell that off to a partner that starts coming out of nowhere with related products. And then it's like, where do you draw the line? Yep. It's good for us because who doesn't like around 50 of their milk? But I can assure you pick and pay is not giving you vouchers for your benefit. Definitely. They're doing it for their benefit. Definitely. They're negotiating some volumes and just driving you there quicker <laughs> for a better deal. And and persuading you that you want to shop with them, not Spa or Woolworths. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, and I guess um, just a note for people that do do this stuff, I guess it's also got to check the puppy compliance, speak to a, a lawyer. That's none of us on this show, <laughs> but that's also a big one that's coming soon. Yes, um, Poppy is something you need to pay attention to, and it becomes relevant when you start putting data into cloud services. Yeah, very. That's just like speak to your company's legal. They'll help figure it out. Yeah, speak to legal, speak to compliance, hire a lawyer if you're in doubt. And better to check first than get punished later. Oh, thanks, Chantal. That was a great question. Can't believe we <laughs> didn't go there <laughs> earlier. Cool. So I think with that, it's probably time that uh, we go head off into picks. Uh, Len, do you have any picks? Whoa, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> um, just hang um, I was just looking through the TensorFlow stuff, and I think uh, I think uh, some of the intro examples there are great. So I guess if people want to, um, yeah, TensorFlow. That's a cool one. Thanks. Sorry for putting you on the spot. I was still opening my notes. Uh, Chantal? Um, I guess my pick for this week is a plugin called Boomerang for Gmail, which lets you um, schedule emails. So I like to um, sit down and write an email properly. So when I'm not um, busy somewhere, so I tend to do it at night, but I don't want to send the email necessarily at that moment. So then you can schedule it to send for the next day. Um, yeah, and I, I was kind of worried about some of the privacy issues, but I read the terms and conditions. Um, seems okay. Yeah. Just just as a point there, um, if you're using Outlook for your mail, it should be a schedule email by itself without needing anything else. Yeah, I've also used that in Outlook before. Um, yeah, then for my side, uh, just one pick, a series. It's a, a different podcast. Um Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything restarted this great series. It's two or three episodes in now on how we are being uh, like mass surveillance, but from like an ad tech point of view and behavioral tracking and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I guess he shows not for everybody, uh, but I kind of dig the randomness of it. And the, he, he mixes being a conspiracy theorist and just being real and practical and chatting to people in the industry and living in his head quite well. But it, it is quite scary. To just see the kind of stuff that these are um, in the series. Kaggle.com, that's K-A-G-G-L-E. It's a machine learning competition. They post up data sets and challenge people to get the best results from them. Very, very um, competitive. But everyone that most of the people that take part in the competitions will happily discuss their results, their methods, their theories, how they got about doing the results. Um, so that's a lovely place to learn complicated real-world machine learning and the other one would be microsoft research cool thank you so this is kegel 
kind of like the Netflix, the Mossadet AI algorithm for a few years. I don't know if it's still running where you need to improve the suggestions they make. Might have been, I'm not Except sure, but a lot of the companies do put up prize money for the cable competitions. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Well, that will be in the picks list with everything else. So, um, yeah, Gail, thanks again. I mean, it's late on a Monday night. Um, this was fantastic. It was a nice walkthrough, lots of stuff, um, lots of great resources. And I, and I hope there's a few things there from just relooking at your production database to helping define what big data is to this future of analytics to give people at different paths, oh, different uh, phases of their journey down the data a nice place to, to start learning from. So thank you so much for that. And um, I'll, if anybody wants to follow you online, uh, you mentioned earlier you've got a blog. I have a blog, um, sqlinthewild.co.za. And that's your Twitter handle as well. And that's my Twitter handle as well, yes. Cool. We'll make notes for that. Right. Cool. And with that, let's say goodnight. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks guys. Good night. Show notes for this episode can be found on zadevchat.io. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at zadevchat or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the ZA Dev Chat podcast, and we'll see you next time.